Pitch Hat Money is brought to you by Interactive Brokers. Designed for active traders and sophisticated investors, Interactive Brokers offers trading assets in 150 markets with 27 different currencies. Interactive Brokers also charges USD margin loan rates from 5.83% to 6.83%. They've also got the ability to trade stocks, bonds, futures, options, commodities, and more, all from a single unified platform. Brett and I use Interactive Brokers ourselves, and I honestly have to say that if you spend a considerable amount of time managing your investments, if you're spanning the globe looking for new stocks, I highly recommend using Interactive Brokers as your platform of choice. Restrictions apply, but for more information, visit ibkr.com, member SIPC, open an account with IBKR today. Welcome into Chit Chat Money. My name is Brett Schaefer, and I am without Ryan Henderson today. Unfortunately, he had to work during this interview. However, we have two very special guests, recurring guests that have been on this podcast, I think three or four times each. It is Sleepwell Capital and Leandro from Best Anchor Stocks, and we are doing a sector overview on luxury companies, stocks. We hit a lot on Hermes. We hit a lot on Rolex. I should say both of these uh, guests have substacks and newsletters that have covered companies that we discussed on the show before, and we will link to that in the show notes. Uh, before we get into it, I should say if you want more access, more written content, all that good stuff, subscribe to our free newsletter, the Chit Chat Money newsletter in our show notes. Uh, we'll have possibly a transcript on this episode. We'll see. And we also have what we're trying out is three follow-up questions with our two guests to cover a little bit more on the luxury sector. Before we get into it, let me hit a special disclosure for our guest, Sleepwell Capital. Disclosure, the opinions of our guest, Sleepwell Capital, are not investment advice. The guests and associates of Sleepwell actively invest in securities. They may have long or short positions in any companies discussed, which are subject to change at any time without notice. All right, before we get into it, if you have, if you like this show, if you like listening to this stuff, we'd recommend following both of these guests. And if you want to support the show, the best and easiest way to do that is to give us a five-star review on either Apple or Spotify. Okay, I think that covers it. Let's get to our luxury overview with Sleepwell Capital and Leandro from Best Tanker Stocks. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan, Brett, or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right. Welcome in. We are on our Thursday interview episode on Chit Chat Money, and we're doing one of our, we've done maybe three or four of these now. It's what we're calling maybe a sector overview, and we're talking luxury today. And luckily, we have two great guests. We have Leandro from Best Anchor Stocks and Sleepwell Capital. So guys, welcome back on the show. Everyone seems to love your uh, appearances here. I think it's both third or fourth time. So this is going to be a great conversation. Yeah. Thank you. 
Excited. Yep. Thank you. All yeah, right. Me too. I, I've already, I've honestly lost count of the times I've, I've come. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so the, the listeners like it and we enjoyed talking with you guys as well. But we're going to be talking luxury today. It is a well-known sector, I guess. Everyone is sort of aware of these brands, but there's a lot of intricacies. There's a lot of uniqueness to this industry that makes it different than others. So let's start things out. I guess maybe we'll just alternate with some of the questions here. I'm going to start with Leandro on the first one and then Sleep, you can follow it up. What is a luxury company? What are its main characteristics? Hmm. I'd say that a luxury company is a company that follows a luxury strategy. I know that that won't uh, clarify much uh, the the definition for for many people, but it's important to understand that regular companies sell products and luxury companies sell much more than a product. So that you can see the difference. For example, a premium company will sell a quality good, but quality is already a given in luxury. And it's the status symbol one achieves with a luxury product. And also it's the dreams that that it evokes. So I think it's more about, about intangibles because you can find quality in another product, but you can find intangibles more in 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 luxury products i know uh, sleepwell has a good um framework to to classify a luxury company yeah no that's that's a great explanation and and just to add on to that a, a couple of of things i think it's it's helpful to think when we talk about luxury sort of more broadly as as a the total sector um it, it's basically a spectrum right and brunello cuccinelli has has this way of 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 separating separating the different types of of luxuries into basically three types. Um, so if you think about a pyramid, basically on the top you have the true or absolute luxury brands, and I think that's what we're going to be actually focusing on today. And then below that you have what we what we we can call aspirational luxury, which are basically companies that are trying to get to the top, but as we will get into, it's incredibly hard to get there. And then at the bottom, we'll, we'll call these accessible luxury brands. Okay, so I think something that is pretty unique to this industry as well is that basically every company that operates in the industry will tell you that they're a luxury company, um, but you kind of have to do your own work to figure out which ones are the true luxury brands. Um, and that's where I think uh, this this definition um, that actually comes from from the Rolex piece that I put out a couple of months ago, which which we can link to, um, to basically it's kind of a framework to uh, filter out those the the those that are not real luxury companies and and really um, make sure that that you're looking um, at a true luxury company, right? So the first one is is um, an obsession with with high quality and craftsmanship, um, a lot of this. I mean, the, the high quality part is is almost a given. Um, obviously, you know the the product has to be really well well made. Um, the design has to be almost instantly you know recognizable. Um, but, but a lot of this also has to do with the story that consumers kind of fall in love with, and and that that's in many cases what they're what they're what they end up buying, right? And we'll talk about, you know, how how you achieve this because it 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 takes it takes arguably decades to to get to that 
to get to get to that place, right? The second characteristic is that it has to be exclusive and, and scarce. And what this means basically is that the products are, you know, actually pretty hard to get your hands into. Um, many times there are wait lists for for a lot of these uh, a lot of these products. Um, consumers were, will actually have to make a uh, an effort to get their hands on them. Um, so that that's another important characteristic. Uh, and the third one is that these products have to evoke a certain status when you when you own own them. And and that's you know wealth is is obviously one of them, but that's not necessarily the 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 only one. Uh, there's you know there's you can also you know be expressing things like you know you have a refined taste or you know an an appreciation for for culture or or history or i mean if you're you know more specifically talking about uh, about watches you can you know you can be a, you can signal that that you're super enthusiastic about about watches and and that you're you know a watch collector i mean there's there's certain watches that if you were to wear them nobody would recognize them except if you were like a sort of a true watch enthusiast if that if, if that makes sense and and then there's also these you know that the, the, there's this aspect where there's many cases where consumers will be buying these products to you know, to celebrate special occasions, right? Uh, you know, it could be retirement, it could be your first child. Um, so th th there's a lot of um, you know, that's kind of the psychology that that goes that goes behind it. So those are are the three uh, main characteristics when we're looking at at these companies. And I think something else that's important to to note um, is that the strategies that these companies use to to get to this place are very different to sort of traditional business 101 um strategies and in many cases it's it's very counterintuitive too right i mean the most basic principle of of all of these companies is that you always have to sell less than uh, than what is being demanded right and so that's obviously completely opposite to what you know your your basic economics supply and demand curve will will, will teach you, um, but we'll we'll get into some of some of the examples of of how they achieve this and 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 why that is right. Mm -hmm. I, I think what what Sleepwell just said is is really interesting because in essence a luxury product makes no economic sense. Like a Veblen good makes no economic sense. Mm, having a higher price product that as price goes up. Um, exclusivity goes up, and then the desire for that for that product goes up. But and that's why luxury is so special because it doesn't make in you cannot apply the same strategy to luxury than to another sector because it makes no economic sense. So obviously you cannot follow the same path as you would with a product that does make economic sense. Pitch Out Money is brought to you by Interactive Brokers. Designed for active traders and sophisticated investors, Interactive Brokers offers trading assets in 150 markets with 27 different currencies. Interactive Brokers also charges USD margin loan rates from 5.83% to 6.83%. They've also got the ability to trade stocks, bonds, futures, options, commodities, and more, all from a single unified platform. 
Brett and I use interactive brokers ourselves. And I honestly have to say that if you spend a considerable amount of time managing your investments, if you're spanning the globe looking for new stocks, I highly recommend using interactive brokers as your platform of choice. Restrictions apply, but for more information, visit ibkr.com, member SIPC, open an account with IBKR today. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Right. And yeah, for the listeners, this stuff can be counterintuitive. Uh, as someone who's studied it a little bit, it, there's still a lot of confusion, I think, out there. So we're going to go through plenty of examples. And we're also going to talk about specific advertising strategies and all the pricing dynamics that go with these companies. But first, we're going to go through three examples. Uh, Rolex, Hermes, Ferrari. First one's Rolex. What separates them from other watchmakers? Yeah, sure. And maybe I think it's helpful to give a little bit of, of context of just the, the, well, what is known as the Swiss watch industry, because that's technically what the, the market that we look at, that we look at when we're talking about, about these watchmakers. Um, basically it's, you know, it's around a 20 billion, um, Swiss franc industry. Um, Rolex has 30% market share, which is, Kind of crazy if you if you think about it, right? It's, that's more than the next five companies combined. And when we talk about the sort of the true luxury companies within the Swiss watch market, in most cases you're referring to what what are known as the big three, which are Rolex, Patek Philippe, and Audemars Piguet. Okay, also known as as AP. Um, now, in terms of of Rolex, you know, like just really quick. Uh, history i mean it's it's been around for 120 years it was founded in in 19 in in 1905 um it wasn't actually always a luxury company which i think is also important to to keep in mind because you you can actually sort of move up in the in this pyramid but it it, it takes a very very long time right so um if we look at, at rolex today in, and what what makes them different to the sort of the lower end uh, watchmakers, you can think of these as basically, you know, Tissot. Um, obviously, Swatch is is really low in the in the in, sort of in in that pyramid. Um, but even other brands like Tag Heuer, for example, which a lot of people might 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 recognize, Rolex kind of stands on its own when you when you when you compare it to to many of these of these other brands. And just you know, just by going back to that framework that I that I was talking about. Before you can, I mean, we we can basically talk about about each and and how and and how Rolex sort of really exemplifies each of those characteristics, right? So, in the first one, which is quality, you know, Rolex is is really well known to have this sort of almost an irrational obsession with um, with quality and what they call the perpetual pursuit of of, of excellence, right? They take this. To, to an extreme, right? So they're, for example, they're they're fully vertically integrated. 
Uh, I mean, when it comes to producing their uh, the the cases of their watches and the materials, they own. I mean, they own their own foundry, right? So they make their own steel, they make their own their own gold. Um, the quality control that that the watches go go into um, is also pretty pretty extreme. I mean, they have a machine that opens and closes a, the, the the clasp uh, of the watch a thousand times per minute. Uh, the waterproof tests are also kind of taken to the to the extreme. Um, basically, all of this is is to say that uh, because they've worked so hard at at this and and also telling the story to the to the consumers, one of the reasons that people will will buy a Rolex is that you are you basically have a lifetime guarantee that that when you buy the watch, you can pretty much you know give it to your son in fifty years and you know that it's going to be working pretty much fine, right? Now the watches need to be serviced every couple of years and whatnot, but in general these are extremely high quality, um, high high quality products, right? Um, the on the second characteristic that I that I had talked about, um, so, uh, the exclusivity and, and scarcity of the of the product. I mean the the simplest way to to ex to exempt to to give an example of this is that you can go into any Rolex uh, authorized dealers. And just to be clear, that it has to be a the the only places where you can buy a Rolex retail are authorized dealers, right? There's many secondhand uh, places that Rolex basically doesn't control because that's the secondary market, which we'll we'll talk about. But if you go to any authorized dealer, um, and you ask them, you know, what do you have in stock? Ninety-five percent of the time, they will tell you they have no product, basically, um, and this shows you that how hard it is to to actually get a product you have to you have to actually you know talk to this to the salesperson and and tell them why you're interested in in buying a rolex which model you're interested in in buying and then there's this whole concept of what is quote unquote known as a as a wait list um and then you kind of have to go back and check in every couple of months with the with the salesperson to see what the status is and if they got the watch and obviously it varies a lot by models there's models that are you know almost impossible to get unless you've bought like 10 watches from this from this retailer etc but again it's just it's it's very hard to get your hands on this on this product from um sort of from the retail level and then finally on the you know the the status uh aspect which is the third characteristic um you know, it go, it goes back to this uh, idea I was I was talking about how long it's taking them to to get to this place. They've they've worked on on cultivating their image and and reputation, uh, which is basically, you know, what excellence and timelessness are kind of what they're what they're known for, right? And they've built this for the for the last a uh, hundred years, right? And this basically means that their the clients uh, end up being you know, kind of obsessively and, and fanatical about the brand. Obviously, you have the collector community, which are, you know, in 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 many ways, they're kind of the best marketing and advertising that that that, that the brands the brands have because they'll, you know, they're 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 the most um, sort of excited about about the product. But and then you have you have things like the partnerships that they've that they've built over time. You know, they they're very selective with who they partner with. And the sports, you know, tennis and golf are are the sort of the two most well known, which they've partnered with, you know, for fifty years plus. 
Um, I mean, Federer in, 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 in tennis has been an ambassador for, for a long time. Um, Jack Nicholas in, in golf, Tiger Woods, of course. Um, so these are, you know, the, the things that they do and they're, you know, they, they may sound simple, but they're also, you know, they're incredibly, they're incredibly targeted and, and almost repetitive because if you go back, you know, to the 1990s, you'll, you'll see them talking about the exact same thing they're talking about today. Right. And it's just really, it's just to kind of ingrain this whole idea in the, in the consumer's mind as much as possible. Okay. And as a second example, and I hope I'm saying this right. This shows how much I little I know about this market. It's Hermes, correct? Am I am I saying that correct? Yeah. I should have figured this out before. Yeah, okay. I, I think I think a, a French a French citizen would be proud. Okay, good, good, good. Because everyone in the United States says Hermes. So uh second example is gonna be Hermes. What separates them from other leather goods and fashion brands? Hmm. I'd say it's a tough question to answer because there are lot there are lots of things. I think it's important first to understand that the true luxury companies don't really compete against each other. So if you ask Brunello Cuccinelli uh, if her mess' strategy influences their strategy, they probably answer no. And the same goes for other luxury companies. I mean, Hermes management always gets the same question like, but your peers or your peers this or your peers have done that. And they always say that obviously that doesn't influence what they do because they are running their business and not the industry or they are not subject to any overall industry strategy. And if the answer to that question is a yes, then it's highly, highly likely you are looking at fashion and not at luxury per se. So that's the first thing. I think this stems from the fact that a luxury customer doesn't necessarily face a choice between one or the other. It's more one and the other. So a customer from Ferrari probably owns a Birkin and probably owns a Rolex. And going also to what Sleepwell was talking about, Rolex, probably someone who owns a Patek also owns a Rolex. I mean, they, they don't face a choice as a normal consumer. I think there's one place where true luxury companies do compete, and that's real estate, because I think we'll maybe touch on this um, later on. But flagship stores are one method that these companies have to advertise. If you go to Amsterdam and you see the store that Hermes has set up there, it's not a store that you need to know what Hermes is to go. Like if you're walking in the street, you look at it because every brick, they have glass, glass bricks and they are made by hand each one of those bricks. So it's that that's one way they have to to advertise. And obviously, the best real estate is very limited in supply. So when a new country is starting to emerge, and now this is the case of, of India, a lot of the luxury companies will go and try to grab the best real estate. So that will be very expensive. And it's also competition, not only from true luxury companies, but also from other brands. I mean, um, Inditex will open a Sara a Sarah store in the best locations in the city. And that's not luxury, but they have the money to open that store. So as I understand, the question is more what differentiates true luxury companies from the rest or what I think you refer to as like what the, the, the pack. So the most import, important differentiator, and I think Sleep will also touch on this, is history or what these companies call the heritage. Um, Hermes was founded more than 180 years ago, 
Um, and this obviously has built throughout the decades a reputation of quality that customers trust. Time is probably the highest barrier or the, the most significant barrier to entry in the luxury space. And it's, not, and it's just not only time. Also, as Sleepwell said, it's a lot of time of doing things right which probably is the most difficult thing there is because it's not like I open a brand today, I wait uh, two centuries and I have my luxury companies. No, you have to open your brand, then do everything right during 200 years and then you have your luxury company. So it's a pretty significant uh, barrier. I think the other differentiating factor from luxury companies versus or from true luxury luxury companies is that these are typically family-owned and operated so that it enables long-term thinking. This is probably the most important element of a luxury strategy because you cannot implement a luxury strategy if you are short-term oriented. And obviously, fashion brands that are publicly traded and are not in the control under the control of one owner, it's more likely that they are going to succumb to investor uh, pressure. And this is kind of very Hermes-specific, but I think Hermes' management is the only one I have seen directly quote the terminal rate in an earnings call, like saying we know what that our valuation depends on the terminal rate, and we are doing all that's possible to preserve this terminal rate. I'm quite sure that if Rolex maybe was publicly traded, you would hear similar things in the in the earnings call. But Hermes right now is the only company that I can think of that has quoted that. I think another very important thing that separates luxury from non-luxury is that they are true to their roots. So Hermes produces 80% plus of their products by hand in France and other companies that were previously considered luxury. And you can think here about Prada. Prada, Prada went to manufacture uh, products in China thinking that that would enable them to connect better with the Chinese customer. But obviously a Chinese customer is not buying Hermes because they are manufacturing in China. They are buying Hermes because they are manufacturing in France and they want a, a, Fr a French-made product. So I think delocalization is typically a symptom of inability to raise margin by raising prices. When you have to raise margins by focusing on your cost structure, then you are more or less implying that you cannot raise margins, margins by focusing on your price, which obviously shows that maybe you don't have such uh, pricing power. The other one, obviously, is, and this is very, very specific in the leather industry. I think Hermes has an advantage in the leather industry due to its origins. Hermes started um, manufacturing or, or making, I, I, I prefer to say making, actually, because manufacturing it seems like it's automated yeah. so, and it's made by hand. Um, the company started um, making horse accessories in the in the nineteenth um, uh, century. So obviously, these were all leather accessories. So that gives them a credibility with leather that maybe other companies um, don't have. And then the last thing uh, I'd say is that luxury companies have a hyper personalized treatment for VIP customers. I mean, it, with Hermes, you can feel like a normal, normal customer. You go into the store, you buy an accessory and you leave. But you can also be a VIP customer and they'll do whatever you want them to do. I mean, if you have a house and you ask Hermes 
for um, advice to maybe put on the furniture, the leather you want to put maybe in your sofa, they'll do everything for you and they'll charge you for you or whatever. You want a Birkin that is tailor-made for maybe uh, some clothes that you have, they'll do that for you. So I think that's very important because there are a lot of um, companies that self-denominate as luxury don't have the ability to do this hyper-personalization because they are selling a lot of volume. So I'd say those are some of the things that make Hermes different from non-luxury companies. And also what makes inside the true luxury companies, I think Hermes is one of the best examples of what true luxury is. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. And another public company that a lot of people will consider luxury, and I think maybe everyone would consider luxury is Ferrari. Uh, very interesting company with probably, you know, similar heritage type stuff. They have the unique Formula One advertising, but anything as we maybe try to reinforce these examples here, any, you know, notes from Ferrari you guys have yeah. for, for these? I think Ferrari is, is, is a fascinating case study because if you look back at the IPO, so it used to be owned by Fiat and um, and it, it IPO'd, um, it was a couple of years ago, I think, yeah, like seven, eight years ago or something. But basically, um, th- there wasn't actually like uh, a consensus that this was a luxury company. Now it's clear because we know where it trades at and, and you know, we've seen the track record, et cetera. But, but when they were doing the roadshow, um, people were, you know, the analysts were comparing it to the sort of the traditional automakers, and maybe they were, you know, talking more about uh, some of the higher end um, uh, automakers, you know, Lexus and whatnot. But uh, at the time, the the Fiat, the late CEO from from Fiat, who's legendary, Sergio Sergio Marchione, uh, he he was saying, "No, you guys are all wrong. This should be comp to Hermes," and people were laughing at him. Um, so it's it was it's pretty interesting because people really didn't understand uh, the the company and the earnings power that 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 it would have, and obviously now with with the benefit of hindsight and and how the market reacted we know but it's very clear just by looking at at their at their margins um, and their you know if you look at the at the average sort of the average selling price of a of a Ferrari you know it's you're talking about three hundred thousand plus right. And again, going back to those three characteristics that I was that I was talking about, I mean, good luck buying a new Ferrari. Like it's 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 impossible, right? Much harder than a Rolex. I mean, you have to you have to basically be a collector of of, of classic cars, specifically 
specifically Ferrari. And, and there's basically a short list of, of, of people that the company is in close touch with and they'll invite you to, um, you know, to their, uh, to their headquarters. If you, if you want to try some of these, some of these cars and, and, and whatnot. So there's, there's a very exclusive club that, that, that you have to, you know, be, be get access to and be, and be, and be part of. And just looking also at, at what uh, some of these classic cars uh, trade at, and we'll talk more about the, the secondary prices, the, the dynamics in a little bit, but it's very clear that, that this is a true luxury company, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think what what's what's funny, quote unquote, funny about Ferrari is that when when it started trading, people commented against premium car brands, and now that it's clear that Ferrari is a luxury brand, people are comping like premium brands to Ferrari, which obviously they are not. And this is happening a lot with Porsche, for example. I think Porsche is a great premium brand, but Porsche cannot be comped with Ferrari because it's not the same. Obviously, you can go and buy a Porsche. And and how I explain it, that maybe it's a, a very simple example, but if, if I'm in Madrid, I see a Porsche every day, for sure, or yeah. probably several. But I see a Ferrari once every three months or once every four months. So obviously, that al- already shows you the exclusivity between one one brand and the other. Yeah, I think... Um... And Aston Martin, I think, was was kind of similar at at, at one point. Por- Porsche is, is actually another interesting one because it's, I mean, I actually think, um, and and that's the thing about luxury too. Like, we, there can be a lot, a lot of disagreements mm-hmm. between what's luxury and whatnot. Um, but I know for a fact that there are certain Porsche models that are very, very, very hard to get. But also they've diluted the brand over over the years with entry more like sort of entry level and accessible models. Mm-hmm. And um, you know the SUV, obviously. I mean, the, the Macan, for example, and 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 these um, and and these other sort of crossover SUVs. They're you see them everywhere, and they're really really easy. They're much easier to get, even if they're priced, you know, uh, sort of pretty expensive compared to regular cars. But um, yeah, again, just speaks to the fact of of you know the the the, the strategies. Um, this this like you you can you can take a, a sort of a high-end luxury company but if if you start overproducing or or making too many accessible products etc you can you can get to a point where the brand overall gets uh, get gets diluted yeah and that leads to the next topic which is if you're a, one of these companies and say you want to grow your business i know one of the classic examples would be louis vuitton uh, how do you retain the allure of being luxury while trying to appeal to maybe more customers? Because I think one of the problems people have and one of the, the frictions is you don't want too many, you don't want to see too many people wearing it, just like you mentioned with Porsche. I think one example that comes to mind from me just you know walking around in my personal life is Gucci. Uh, that could, That's one I think I've read that people are concerned about. So what are you guys' thoughts on that? How do you successfully uh, make mm-hmm. this transition? Yeah, I think there are two angles to this question. So when you talk about growth, you can talk about, uh, talk about pricing and then growth from volume. In pricing, actually, luxury is the perfect model to grow in pricing because, um, and this is obviously counterintuitive, but it's what a Veblen good is. Um, higher prices lead to higher exclusivity and higher demand. So I, I recall reading an interview by uh, Ferrari's chief marketing officer, and he claimed that Ferrari was quote-unquote, forced 
to raise prices annually because their customers were getting mm, richer. And obviously, if they didn't raise the price of the Ferrari, then the Ferrari was less, less exclusive for that customer. So they are forced to, to raise prices. And then the, the problem probably comes from growth in volume, obviously, because that's the example that you, you discussed. I think luxury brands have been able to circumvent, like to, to manage through this problem through the years, and they have used different strategies. I think we've talked here about Hermes and Ferrari. For example, Hermes, yes, they will sell accessories to the middle class, but they have retained exclusivity in several iconic products and also across their, their VIP customers. So if you want a Birkin or a Kelly, it's not as easy to get a Birkin as to get a, a Hermes tie. So they have, they have managed to retain the brand through several uh, iconic products. Another good example is obviously Ferrari, because to grow in volume, the company has said, okay, we understand that we need to, to grow the company. So we'll, instead of launching, let's say, 20% more Ferraris of this model, we'll launch more models. So when you buy, for example, uh, the new Puro Sangue, the, the SUV, you'll still own one of X Puro Sangues. Like there'll be, I'm going to make up a number here, there'll be 10,000 or in, across all the years or 2,000 and you'll own one. And we'll sell more volume of another model, but you, you still have an, an exclusive product because we're not going to make more. And I think it's, it's interesting because luxury brands have always had this problem of the volume, the growth versus exclusivity uh, dilemma. But I think we might be operating in kind of a new paradigm where the brand can be reinforced by high penetration. I mean, I think some years ago, around 50% of, of office women in Japan owned a Louis Vuitton bag. So 50% of all office women in Japan owned a Louis Vuitton bag. That's a crazy, a crazy stat. So obviously, people started to buy them just as a sign of status, like I cannot be left out. But they still consider in Japan that Louis Vuitton is a luxury product. And I think it's more a question, and I'll let Sleepwell chime in here, of the demand and supply equation. Normally, what, what Sleepwell commented at the start, the, the normal economic theory will say, well, if you have this demand, try to bring supply where it meets demand. And that's your sweet spot because you will sell as much as you have. Well, in luxury, the question is, can I grow while remaining, while, while still undersupplying the market? And if you grow while that equation holds, where your supply is significantly lower than demand, then you'll retain exclusivity. If you grow by closing that gap, then you have a problem as a luxury company. Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a great point. I mean, it's, you have to strike that balance and, and whenever you are growing production to to meet the you know sort of increasing demand you have to make sure that you're also you know investing in 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 growing that demand you know at least as fast as as that production and obviously it's very hard to to measure what the demand is but the best brands have to you know be really good at understanding how much their their product is is being demanded right um there's a there's a great quote from you know the luxury the luxury strategy which is kind of the go-to book for 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 the luxury industry that says a luxury brand must have far more people who know it and dream it than people who buy it and that's again goes back to that 
you know, selling less than one is demanded. But I think that's a very, that's a very nice, nice, nice way to put it. And and you know, similar to what Leandro was was saying in in Japan and 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 women in the office. I mean, if you go, I don't know the stat, but if you go to Wall Street or or whatever, Midtown Manhattan, like you'll see a ton of people wearing Submariners, right? Like just the, the most popular Rolex model. And again, that doesn't mean that. Um, I mean that doesn't mean that it's that it's like accessible to everyone. It's just it's it's just kind of an impressive feat that Goldex has 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 achieved because in 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 fact uh, that's the people that you see that have been able to get one, but there's you know multiples more that are that are trying to get one and they they basically can't right. So that's that's really what um, what makes it what makes it all all the more impressive. And I think it's it's also important to to talk about. Um, the advertising strategies here, because um, again, this is another part where uh, the, the you have to sort of flip the traditional school of thought when it when it comes to selling, right? If you look at any advertisement from you know from Hermes, from Rolex, uh, Ferrari, Patek Philippe, they're they're never gonna be selling you something based on their characteristics or like telling you this, uh, you know, th- this is better than the competition. Or like, for example, in in the in the car in the traditional car world, is very, you know, it's very typical to talk about, you know, the the technology that the car has, or the zero to sixty acceleration, or this Toyota is safer than this this other car. Like luxury brands will never do that because they live in their own little world and they're never going to be comparing themselves to to anybody else right it's sort of this very exclusive universe with a with a with an exclusive uh, storytelling um aspect that is very unique to them right and 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 again goes back to what Leandro mentioned that they're not like directly competing with with each other right they they live they, they almost live on their on their own little market if you want to if you want to think about it that way i think one of the best advertising campaigns in the in in the watch world which is which is pretty well known is is from patek philippe right and and it shows um it shows you know sort of a a a guy in his you know in his mid mid 50s sitting next to his to his son who maybe is like 10 years old or something and you know he looks like a successful businessman or whatever but he's wearing a, a Patek Philippe and then in the bottom it says you never really own a Patek Philippe you merely look after it for the next generation and that's just like genius right obviously but it speaks to how these uh, how these brands are trying to 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 sell to you right um they're they're actually like telling you a story right they're telling you that that this is is going to last you multiple lifetimes right um, and they're selling you a dream, basically, um, because a lot of people that are going to see this this advertisement are probably never going to own a Patek Philippe. But that's kind of the point, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, you're not going to see a QR code on a on a uh, yeah. on a luxury advertisement. I think yeah. maybe to hone it on something because it can get confusing. So you mentioned the Rolex example; they love focusing on their golf and tennis personalities and the specific tournament tournaments wimbledon the masters turn tournament right but you're not going to see a rolex advertisement i don't think uh, i guess i watch a lot of my local baseball team at my on my local baseball team or at the local baseball stadium so why is that why do they choose these specific 
distribution points like are they do they just have to be very specific and saying look tennis has this kind of luxury appeal Wimbledon you know Wimbledon the U.S. Open stuff like that how do they choose where to advertise yeah no I think you you kind of hinted on it I think it has to do with the crowds that these kind of sports attract right like if you if you go to to Wimbledon or, or the U.S. Open like it's it's a very different event that going to a baseball game, right? It's, it's a lot more, it's a lot more formal. People dress up for it. It's full of celebrities and golf is, is, is the same, right? So they, they really want to be associated with, you know, certain sports and, and, and activities that, you know, that resonate with their sort of their, their, their image, right. And their, their image and their, and their sort of their, their main, their their main ideas, right? Um, I mean, another thing that they've that they've done, for example, is they've Rolex has been um, associated with, you know, scuba diving and sort of exp- like deep sea exploration for a long time because they make uh, these watches that that can go, you know, to thirty thousand feet um, under underwater. So, for example, when when James Cameron. Um, Built his own, you know, submarine and went down to the to the Mariana Trench, which is the deepest point in the in the ocean. Rolex gave him um, a deep sea Challenger, which is the, the the model that goes to the to the highest depths in the in the world. And he basically put it like right outside the the, the submarine, and it went down with him all the way to the bottom, and then came back. It was just like just like a PR stunt, right? And it and and it worked really well. And James Cameron is a huge Rolex fan, and he's an ambassador. Right. So they just try to find, you know, um, you know, sports and, and, and activities that really match with their image, basically. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll comment here one one thing related to advertising, because it's interesting because you can basically differentiate between aspirational luxury and true luxury just by, by looking at logo size. So is if you see a product with a huge logo then you can question if, if that is really exclusive because there are, I mean, and there are surveys and studies around this. Uh, the more exclusive a product is, the smaller the logo the customers want. So I, I don't think luxury is about regular people knowing you are wearing a Birkin. It's about affluent, like very rich people recognizing it without needing to see a brand. I mean, if you are in a, if you wear a Birkin and you go to a place where you see a lot of people from the, the upper high classes, then they'll basically know that you're wearing a Birkin. They don't need to see her, the Hermes logo. And the Birkin has like Hermes written on it, but it's so, so small that you can not even appreciate it. Yeah, it's a good point. All right. We've talked a little bit about pricing, uh, but I'm just going to open it up to you guys. The pricing dynamics of luxury are quite interesting. And as you guys said, quite attractive. So Let's hit all these things, pricing power, you know, and I think the key one is why uh, higher prices doesn't necessarily equal luxury. You can't just say this coffee cup is going to be a million dollars. Now it's now it's a luxury yeah. product. Yeah. And Leandro kind of touched on on this in how Hermes thinks about it, but it's pretty much, you know, it's for these true luxury companies, it's it's very um, it's, it's a very similar strategy, right? It's they're raising price like clockwork. Um, there's a there's a great chart um, that I put out in a in a tweet a, a month ago or so uh, that basically tracks the the prices of the 
best-selling wallets models going back to like you know the 1970s and you can pretty much see that it's compounded at like seven percent per year um that's it's kind of it's kind of what they've uh what they've done which is pretty it's pretty incredible when you when, when you think about it i mean to have that kind of that kind of pricing power the other thing that i think is is very important and one of the most obvious tells that a company is not luxury is that none of these companies will ever discount never like you'll never see a uh any of their products going on sale 15% whatever black friday like that's 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 a huge red flag um for for any any of these any any of these companies and and if we think about the concept of of you know having a product priced at a at a certain level versus other products i mean that doesn't necessarily make it luxury Price is is just one part of the of of the equation. In isolation, it doesn't. I don't think it really means anything. It has to be accompanied with all these other things that we're that we're that we're touching upon, right? Um, and I mean, I think we're, we're going to talk about uh, what why other companies that people might think are luxury but really aren't are, are as examples. But just to give a like a quick one, like you can you can buy an Apple Mac Pro. For like twenty thousand dollars, if you like fully custom it, but that doesn't mean you're buying luxury, right? So that again, that, that just just because you're selling something that's super expensive doesn't make it doesn't make it luxury. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, how how I would describe it is that high price, like the ability to set a high price, is a consequence of being a luxury brand, mm-hmm. but it's not an enabler. Like you're just because you charge a high price, you're not going to become a luxury brand. But if you're a luxury brand, you have the ability to do so because there's much more in luxury. And we went over this uh, at the beginning of the of the episode. There's much more than price. There's heritage. There's the intangibles. You cannot simply attain all of those characteristics by setting a high price. And I'll give here the the example of Hermes because Hermes has a pretty special pricing strategy in the luxury world. So the other, well, the other day, um, a couple of months ago, I think I did a, a survey on on Twitter, um, well, now X, where I said, where I asked, I think is the price compounded annual growth rate for Hermes in pricing from 2018 to 2020? Obviously, you, re- you receive the answers that you're expecting, like, uh, closer to high single digit or low double digit? Well, the answer is 1%. Because Hermes um, prices their products only when production costs rise. And you might think, well, that's stupid. Well, mm, you can think that way, but they are thinking about the terminal value. And they know that if they continue growing without needing to turn on the pricing lever, then they'll have that pricing reserved for the for the terminal years, which is what they are what they care about. And it, it's crazy because if if you get the the resale value and and we can talk about this now, the resale value of a Birkin, the average, I'll say it's like two times or two point five times. Obviously, this is an average. You have her, you have Birkins that go from basically the same price as the retail price, and others that are much much more expensive. But if you get these prices and then you make some calculations, you, you get to the fact that Hermes could increase the price of the Birkin by 3% every year 
for 30 years and they will still be pricing retail below resale. And that for me is incredible. And they have raised the price of the Birkin and the Kelly for an average of 4% per year over the last five decades. And when you, when, when you start, like, when you start to read these stats is when you start to understand why these companies trade at the valuations that they trade, right? Because obviously this is some special pricing power. Not many companies have the ability to raise prices one year, 7% and still be exclusive, exclusive as they were last year. I don't know if you want to, in the topic of, of the secondary market values, if you want to touch on Rolex. Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. And, and it's the same in, you know, in, in, with the watch, with the watchmakers, right. And basically looking at Rolex, Patek Philippe and, and AP, which is one of the three that we, that we mentioned, the average, you know, the average secondary market prices versus retail is, is, is somewhere, somewhere around that, right. It's around double depending on, on different models, et cetera. But um, that is, that is such a great barometer to, Kind of see the 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 health of a of a brand and and um, and and a, a very honestly a very easy way to ter- determine if a, if a company is, is is a true luxury company or or not. I, I mean I know a lot of people that that like to argue that uh, that Omega is the same as Rolex, but if you look at at where Omega watches on the secondary market trade at, it's nowhere near that, right? Um, which means that obviously you can just go into an Omega store and buy. Pretty much any Omega that you that you want without really having to wait anything. I mean, there's always all these brands always have like very limited edition models and whatnot. But just generally on their mo- most popular models, um, you can just walk in and 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 buy them, right? So again, it's just a really good reflection of of the brand's health. And and there's you know there's different you know ways of 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 thinking. Of, of kind of where's the sweet spot? Um, should the should it really be trading that much higher? And then COVID obviously had all, all these sorts of implications where people started buying watches to to flip them and thought they were going to keep going up and whatever. But the fact is, even though that that the prices have come down a lot in the last you know nine months or so, um, it's still it's still healthily above 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 retail. Does this kind of connect to an example I've heard before where? I think it was with Ferrari where people talk about customers wanting the price to rise, but they have to have a balancing act of maybe not fulfilling all of that where they have to keep. Does that make sense? Or, or is does that connect in any way to across all these companies? Mm-hmm. I think that the the resale value, the secondary market value is the limit where you can technically take your price because that's uh, that's the price that the market is telling you at this price is where we can equal demand and supply so you have to stay under that because if not you're obviously supplying the market so i think and i think there are different strategies for the secondary market for example you mentioned ferrari ferrari actually tracks the secondary market because they know that if ferraris remain retain their value in the secondary market then they'll have a lot of repeat pur- purchases by by customers. Maybe a customer that has owned a Ferrari for three years will sell the Ferrari in the secondhand market and will buy a new one. But then you have Hermes, which is not really a fan of the secondary market and actually will blacklist a customer if they buy a Birkin and automatically sell it on the secondary market because they want the Birkins to be reserved for the clients that actually want to have the Birkin forever. 
So I think it's it's kind of a limit, and some of them track it, and and some of them track track it less. But for investors or for people interested in the industry, it's one for me. It's one of the most important indicators of the of as Leepwell said, the the health of a brand. And and it's also in the consumer in the consumers brands. And and I mean, I've talked to a lot of watch collectors, and not everybody thinks this way, but a lot of them care about this secondary value because if you're gonna go if you're like a huge rolex collector and you buy you know whatever three four rolexes per year and you and you're buying this like limited edition piece for two hundred thousand dollars like at least there's some comfort in knowing that if you really need to sell that in whatever in five years because you ran into some financial trouble or whatever you're you're probably gonna get a lot more than that right or at at the very very least you're gonna get you know somewhere around that Right. So because you're spending so much money on these on these, you know, collectibles and they they're, they just end up being almost like pieces of art. Right. Mm-hmm. Ferrari is, is actually an interesting case because um, the chief marketing officer, I don't know if it's the current one or one that was in the past of Ferrari, previously worked at uh, Barilla, the pasta company. Uh, well, the food company, but um, mostly famous for, for the pasta. And he said that he had to completely change his way of seeing like the relationship with customers. Because when, it, when he was at Ferrari, when he launched and when Ferrari launched an exclusive model, that was not a product that they were selling. That was a gift for the best customers. Okay, yes, the car is $1 million, but I'm making you a gift because you know that when you buy this car and this car arrives at your driveway, this car is going to be worth four or five million. Because you're one of the 100 people that have this car. And that's kind of also counterintuitive and very special, and especially in the in the car market, right? Because when you buy a new car and you open the door and turn the engine for the first time, that car automatically is worth like 20% less. Yeah, at least. <laughs> yeah, not a bad business model. Not a bad business model. All right, let's talk distribution. Uh, how do they you know, get the products out to customers. How does a customer come in contact with the brand? You guys mentioned the flagship stores. I think people are well, well aware of those, you know, Fifth Avenue, stuff like that. So how does this work? What, what, you know, what do they do differently than everyone else? Yeah, I think, so it's in, it's very important for these brands to control the, the retail aspect of, of the, of the selling process because it's it's so you know sort of personalized to the to, to the customers that you know you don't want to you don't want to be outsourcing that and and again you have these uh, in both in in Hermes and and Rolex you have these issues where there's people that might be wanting to buy a Rolex and then they'll just flip it um which is an ongoing it's an ongoing problem um, so you really need to have control of 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 that of that selling aspect, right? And another another part of of um of you know of 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 luxury businesses that is misunderstood and sort of counterintuitive is that the the selling is is pretty much flipped on its head. Like there's no sales people in the store trying to sell you something. It's actually the opposite. You're almost trying to convince the salesperson that you're worthy of buying this product, which is insane, but that's literally, um, that's literally how it, how it works. Um, now maybe I'll, I'll let Leandro talk about 
um, what specifically about Hermes and and how that compares to maybe other of the you know leather goods and fashion brands. And then I'll talk about Rolex because Rolex is interesting. Um, is an interesting example here that is actually live because they don't own the retailers, but they actually have started making moves to do this. So I'll, I'll pass it on to, to Leandro and then we'll talk about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think as, as we've discussed <laughs> throughout the, the episode, this is very similar. The, the strategy is very similar across luxury companies because they are actually following the, the luxury strategy. So if you're luxury, you have to own your distribution. That's it. Like there, there's, that's, that's like a rule because you have to own the experience, the customer experience. That's one of the intangibles that you get with a luxury brand. The fact that you go to the store and it's like an event. When when you buy a, from Hermes a Birkin, they'll take you to the back of the store. They'll come with a Birkin. They'll serve you cake. They'll serve you um, whatever you want for drink. I mean, it's, it, it's like an event. And I think this is the, the fact that they want this to be so personalized. One of the facts that has made this company so reluctant to sell online, right? I mean, during COVID, they had no other choice and they started selling. But these companies won't sell all the products in their website. You cannot buy a Birkin in the, from Hermes in their website. Well, you don't. You cannot even buy it in a store. You have to go onto a list and then you'll go to the back of the store and you'll see the Birkin. But you, you won't see them before. And I think... And I think Sleepwell referred to um, the luxury strategy, which is from Cap Ferrer, that is one of the uh, most well-known um, writers on, on luxury and strategists. And he said something that is very simple to understand, but it, that is so powerful. He said that the internet was built for the masses and luxury is opposite to the masses. So obviously it's very difficult to have a, stra- a luxury strategy in the internet. Because it's contradictory. And I think that's very important. Although I would say, and obviously Rolex is an example of this, and then I'll pass it on to, to Sleepwell, that there are certain categories where you do sell through wholesale. And that will be probably perfumes. Um, you also have sometimes jewelry and you also have watches. And those three, these companies tend to sell through wholesale. And it's also a very good way of attracting new consumers to the brand. But if they want more products, then they'll have to go to Hermes to buy it. Yeah. So on Rolex specifically, I think it's it's very interesting what's happening now because I've mentioned that Rolex is is pretty much fully ver- vertically integrated. But if you look at at that entire chain, the only place or part that they don't control is the selling aspect, which again is is extremely important. Now. Rolex has a very, very strict vetting process in terms of who can become an authorized dealer for them. And, and it's, you know, they have to follow a, a, a long list of, of, of rules in terms of location and, and, um, and how the store has to look and feel and training for the employees, et cetera. But again, they don't, they don't actually, they don't actually own that. They don't control that. So they'll do, they've done as much as they can to keep that, you know, as, as as highest quality as 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 possible, um, but in the last, I think it was two or three months ago, they actually came out with a with an announcement that they're buying uh, Booker, which also owns uh, Tourneau. Um, if you live in New York City or one of these major U.S. 
cities you'll recognize um, that that watch uh, that watch store. And it was the first time ever that Rolex has gotten into the retail business, right? So obviously the the watch world um, was pretty shocked to see this 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 news. But again, if you think about their strategy and what they've done over the years, it's not all that surprising, right? So now the question is, what are they going to do next? Because Booker and their stores, they sell all sorts of different brands, right? So now Rolex is essentially going to be selling, you know, Omega and 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 IWC and 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 even Patek Philippe in these stores. Um, but we need to see what's going to happen going forward because they. They, there's going to be this tension uh, with the other authorized dealers that they don't own. Um, there's actually a public company uh, traded in the in the UK, Watches of Switzerland, which is another very large distributor uh, of Rolex, but it's multi-brand. Um, so we'll have to see how, how Rolex goes about this. But my sense is they're probably going to start allocating more and more uh, watches to their own stores. And, you know, there's been a... There's been a pattern of them uh, of closing uh, stores down uh, to just kind of reduce the food pr- footprint. Again, just be more exclusive. Um, really evoke that 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 status that they that they're aiming for. That these things are hard to get. Um, so so yeah, it'll be. I mean, it'll be just interesting to watch all that unfold and 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 where it and where it lands. Um, Audemars Piguet, which I mentioned before, they actually they're going full on with a DTC strategy and they're basically rolling out their own um, their own boutiques and taking inventory out of all the other uh, sort of multi-brand uh, authorized dealers. Now, this is kind of a timely one, but Farfetch was a good example, I think, of the distribution stuff. They've had quite a bit of issues if you see that stock price and there's been some news. I don't have the details, so maybe you guys can explain if it's relevant. But what happened there? Why... Why was it not like following this luxury strategy? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, this, we could make a whole other podcast about this, but essentially one of the main problems that, that Farfetch has, and to be clear, Farfetch is not luxury, right? Farfetch is a marketplace, right? They will, you know, they will, you know, tell their investors they're, exp- they're exposed to the luxury industry, et cetera. But one of the biggest problems that they, that they have very much related to this topic of you know going wholesale versus going DTC is that by definition the best luxury brands are never going to sell there right so you will never find um an Hermès selling there a Louis Vuitton a, a Rolex um now to be clear there's you know they sell secondhand goods so you can you can find used Rolexes and whatnot which obviously the brands don't control but the the point is that they basically end up with all the other all these other brands that are essentially aspirational luxury brands um so you're talking just different different economics and and that's to be, i mean that's one of the issues right there's a whole other bunch of issues they they ran into they thought they were going to grow a lot faster than they actually did and the covid pulled forward and then you know uh, bloated cost space etc um but yeah, I think Farfetch is just—it's—it's it's an interesting example of, of should there be or should there not be a, a scaled luxury marketplace? And there's—it's still kind of, you know, the question is still unanswered. Uh, we'll have to see what happens with the, with the company. But so far, it just—it hasn't been 
it hasn't been successful, or at least it's not not in a sustainable um, in a sustainable level. Hmm. And I and I looked at at Farfetch a long long time ago, but would not did not convince me, and still doesn't convince me even today that I think it's the the right business model, but in the in the maybe in the wrong industry because if you strive to be a marketplace a marketplace for true luxury, you're obviously not going to be able to do that. Then you'll go to aspirational luxury and then that space is going to be much more competitive. So exactly. for me it's much easier for Salando to go to the aspirational luxury space than it will ever be for Farfetch to ever go to tr- true luxury. And I and I get the argument of, yeah, but they had I don't even know if they have this still, but they have uh, Farfetch platform solutions, right? That they are trying to sell to other companies so that they can manage their strategy, but retaining their brand. But I mean, Hermes has operating margins in the 30s. I don't think that they need to outsource any of this. They have enough money to control everything if they want. And one of the elements of the luxury strategy is to obviously own all your supply chain or try to own as much of it because you you can then work on sustainability. You're not going to get disruptions. So for me, I don't know much about the company, but it doesn't seem the right business model to considering the kind of sellers that they are in the luxury industry. Okay. Now this is a fun one. Landro, I've heard you talk about this before, write about this before. Why is luxury considered Lindy? And for anyone that doesn't know, maybe explain what the Lindy effect is. Okay, so so the Lindy effect in, in short is basically that the past matters. So if you've been a company that's been um, alive or have, has survived 80 years, then it's more probable that they'll survive the, the next 80 um, than a company that maybe it's newer. And that goes against maybe the, um, the diminishing returns, right? Because everyone, or against capitalism even, because people think that when a company has been living for uh, for a long time then you'll they'll eventually face one of the mm, largest the most significant risk for any established company company which is complacency and at the end they'll fall and they'll get disrupted so that's capitalism but lindy demonstrates that there are companies that continue to do well and maybe that's because of their past and i think luxury is a perfect example of of this effect i think the question has two angles to it. So one, we could look at the past and the other one if, is we, if we look at the future. So if we look at, at the past, I think it's evident that luxury is intrinsically linked to human nature. Um, it's obviously tough to put an exact, an exact date to the, to the start of the luxury as an, in, to luxury as an industry. But in ancient Egypt, that's around 5,000 years ago. And even before that, you already saw how luxury products were used by certain individuals as a status symbol. And we humans are social animals. And in society, obviously, there are going to be classes and people trying to be above others. And I think the the relatively recent rise of social media is just a perfect example of this. I mean, everyone wants to appear in the Instagram that they have the best life. And luxury is a way for them to also say, hey, look, this is I'm I'm richer than you are, or, or I'm in the upper class while you're in the low class. And I think that that if you if you look at the past, I mean, five thousand years is a lot of years. So they have they have gone through mm, a lot of pandemics, a lot of uh, world wars. The industry ha- has gone through everything that they that they can go, and and they, and it's still alive and growing. So obviously that demonstrates some Lindy-like characteristics, and then. 
I think in here, I will also comment that there literally has gotten some criticism about what it can do to inequality. I think it's a fair criticism. Um, I don't remember who said it, but I think as, as investors, we should try to invest in the world that we live in and not in the world that we want to live in. And obviously, there's going to be classes. Um, it's very um, nice of people to to say no, but there should not be like uh, inequality. But inequality is something that will be like will always be present in society. It's not something that we can fix. Um, so would the world be better without luxury? Well, this is a it's a strange question because I'd say that I don't know because one of the reasons why China opened up to luxury is very, is because they wanted people to strive to get better. So the rationale is that money obviously doesn't fall off trees. So having a society divided by status is positive so that people can strive to get to the next level. I mean, if it's better to have people striving to be in the upper class than giving them no incentive whatsoever to abandon the lower class. And luxury was seen like a, a tool to do this. And now from the point of view of the of the future, I would say luxury is clearly Lindy. And we've talked about we've talked about this because history or time is the most significant barrier to entry. So this means that as more time passes, the entry barriers are getting larger. So it's very difficult for a company to go against her mess and it's 186 years of history. But what would happen in another 120 years when her mess is 300 years old? Um, an aspiring luxury company needs to then overcome 300 years of history, not 180. So I think it's the, fir- it's the perfect uh, example of Lindy. And with this, I'm not trying to say that Hermes will live on forever. Obviously, any company can be mismanaged and Hermes can... Uh, and, and I think what one company you commented before, Gucci, I think Gucci has lost some of its luxury um, equity that it had in the past. And that's because it has not been managed exactly with the luxury strategy. But the, the good thing, or what I would say is the good news uh, for Gucci is that it still remains top of mind as a luxury brand for money consumers. So they don't have to strive to, like, it's not going to be as hard for them to get to that level as for an aspiring luxury that was never true luxury. Yeah, and uh, I will add something else to that to kind of take it to the to the next level because you talked about the, the concept being Lindy and then the companies, but what makes it even even more interesting is that the the products and the models that these companies are selling, um, which are their their most coveted and, and best selling products, they've been around for for decades, right? Like if you look at at the Rolex Submariner, which is sort of the quintessential, you know, if you think about a Rolex, that's literally what comes what comes to people's minds, and everybody recognizes it. I mean, that's been around since you know since 1953, right? And since then, there's been you know, hundreds, if not thousands of brands that have copied that exact design and try to replicate it. And obviously it hasn't, it hasn't worked. Right. And if you look at the first Submariner and you look at the one that just came out last year, they pretty much, I mean, they're a little different, but the, the design is, is pretty much the same. They'll make these little small adjustments and, and whatnot, but, but these companies won't change the models. And I can guarantee you that in 50 years, 
the Rolex lineup will be exactly the same. That they will still be selling the the Submariner. They'll still be saying the the Datejust, the Daytona, um, and it's just again just to go back to the concept of the moat. It's just incredibly incredibly hard to 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 replicate that, right? And mm. It takes it takes so much time, which is why these businesses are valued at, at where where they are, right? Yeah, right. I Heritage actually is, have yeah, uh, expense. Or, go yeah, ahead, but I actually have a a perfect quote uh, for, for what Sleepwell just described, and it's from uh, Capferrer. And Capferrer says that luxury does not aim to become a bestseller, but rather a long seller. I think yeah. this is a key difference between luxury companies and premium companies or fashion or fashion brands. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Now we have maybe. I guess we're going to transition into some companies that aren't luxury or we're going to do maybe just a little separate topic here. Uh, It's going to be perfect for, as we were joking before about the breakout uh, little video on Twitter, because a lot of people love these brands and love these stocks. But I have four examples here. Apple, Tesla, American Express, Nike, uh, good brands, all these stocks, I think have done phenomenally over the last few decades or maybe shorter for for some of the cases. Why are these companies premium, but not luxury? Because this is one of those examples of people I've heard all the time call Apple a luxury product, but I think you guys would argue that that's an incorrect way to put it. Yeah, I mean, if we haven't answered that by now, we haven't done a a good job. I think it's pretty clear, right? Like it, it goes back to those those characteristics that we were that we were talking about and in this in this case the one that stands out the most is that these products are not they're not exclusive right they're not scarce right like everybody who wants to buy an iphone unless you know you're in some sort of you know if you live in extreme poverty or something you won't be able to afford it but anyone that buys an iphone you know will will be able to buy an iphone and apple is basically producing as many iphones as they can sell Right. That's just the very, the, the, but by definition, that's exactly what they're, what they're doing. So even though it's a premium product and, and that's exactly what these companies are, they sell premium products, right? They're, you know, they're higher quality and they, they, they perform better than, than some of their competitors, et cetera. But again, they're, they're, they're scarce. They're, they're not, I mean, they're not, they're not scarce. They're easy to get. You go to the store, you buy them, you can order them online. Um, you can, you know, you customize them, whatever. And, and they also, they also change a lot, right? Um, like Apple will keep, will keep changing the, the iPhone and, and the iPhone, the iPhone is not Lindy either. Like if we go back to that, to that concept, um, I mean, who knows what it's going to, what that's going to be like in, you know, in 30 years, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think, I mean, we these companies have made some of what we can call luxury sims. So Tesla has discounted cars. That's a exactly. sim in the in the luxury industry. Then, if I right now, and I don't know if if you're a shareholder, bed, but if I right now call American Express and tell them. I want to stop my subscription. I know that I'm going to get probably a better offer for my for my subscription. And a luxury company would tell you, "Okay, go ahead." I mean, <laughs> you can you can live as a customer. I, I don't care. So I think they obviously don't follow the 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 luxury strategy. I would say that Apple has done quite a be a good job being perceived as luxury, even though it's not luxury. But people do see it 
like if it's following uh, kind of a luxury strategy. And I think that the the brands in the luxury industry also know that Apple has somewhat between premium and their luxury, their type of luxury. I mean, Hermes has some products for for an iWatch and they have an association with Apple. So they obviously feel that by partnering with Apple, they are not destroying equity. Whereas maybe partnering with other companies, they might feel that they are destroying equity. And I think that's, it's it's incredible how Apple has managed to sell at the same time more volume, but being perceived as luxury, even though it isn't luxury. Yeah, it's interesting how they do their advertising where it's not exactly luxury where they do talk about, I mean, I'm sure we've all seen the advertisement this year about titanium, which mm. seems to just be endless. But in, in some ways, they just do some of that aspirational stuff where they're not actually talking about the yeah. product. And I think maybe does this exemplify the moat of some of these true luxury companies where I believe in that Rolex business breakdown episode, they talked about how when Apple Watch and the smartwatches entered the market, it crushed Fossil Watch, which was, I think it's Fossil, yeah. uh, which is maybe a premium brand, but Rolex has still maintained its dominance. Yeah, absolutely. So that's actually a, a great point. And, and I mean, just like you said, like when the Apple Watch came out, everything in the, I think it was the sub 500 um, segment just got crushed, right? Because that's basically where the where the pricing of the of the Apple Watch was. But if you look at whatever three thousand plus, like that basically was untouched because it's you're you're just buying a completely different product. Nobody nobody says I want to buy a watch, and I'm not sure if I want uh, an Apple Watch or a or a Rolex. Like that's just, nobody does that, right? Um, it's just two completely different products. Mm-hmm. And and I think that out of my, like, the people I know who own an, an iWatch, like 80% also own a Rolex, and they will not give one for the other. Yeah. I mean, th- this is going back to the fact that you're going to buy a Rolex even if you buy another watch, yeah. because the Rolex is the watch, it's not any watch. Yeah. I will say interestingly about about Amex now that that we talked about it a little bit the black card is probably considered luxury. Yeah, it's a good point. They fall to get strategy. It's yeah. Really hard to get, you don't even know how to get it and there's fit, you know, it's scarce. I mean, it's it's yeah, it, it's got like this little mystery to it when people, you know, pull it up and whatever. But I just think that's actually kind of interesting. Yeah, that they are a unique company for sure. Now from an investor perspective, I think a lot of people listening are like, okay, well, there's some of these well-known brands, but you know, wh- what could be, and Ferrari is probably one of those once-in-a-generational opportunities of a luxury company trading and not a luxury earnings multiple. Um, you know, are there any of those other companies out there? And I think one management team that would pound the table would be arguing about this constantly, that they are trying to be one of these brands and maybe are trying to, as they say, climb the luxury mountain is RH formerly Restoration Hardware. Yeah, Curious you guys' thoughts here, if you've looked at them closely. I know Sleepwell, you have. Um, are they? Are, can they make this climb? Is it impossible? Or, you know, it's an interesting case study for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely one of the most like polarizing stocks out there. It's incredible how extreme either one way or the other people's views are, right? Um, I think it's, it's an incredible 
case study to to watch and obviously you know gary is is quite a character and the earnings calls are super entertaining um i mean on the one hand gary recognizes how hard it is to make that transition um i think they are doing quite a few things right um you know especially on the on the way that they sell their products and sort of the merchandising and the upgrading from the legacy stores to the to the galleries um i mean every time a new gallery opens up it creates like a huge splash and, and people love to go to the stores they're you know they they they've started building restaurants and hotels and all this like ecosystem around it um you know the design has gotten a lot a lot better a lot more refined um a lot more modern so there's you know there's there's things that they've that they've done right and and again, not to look at pricing in isolation, but also they they seem to have uh, showed that they have some pricing power in there as as they've launched new new newer collections. Where I think I disagree with with Gary is in a couple of places in their in their strategy. Um, I think the products are changing too much, and we talked about uh, sort of the most important best selling products of of these companies. Um, have to be around for a really long time. You know, the Birkin bags of the world, the Submariners, um, you know, uh, Porsche 911 has been around for a really long time. I think Ferrari's case is, is, is probably, is probably the same. Um, you know, furniture is, 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 is complicated, right? And it's different and they have to kind of keep on, on changing it. Um, actually their best selling product, um, is called the cloud. Which is a, a a sofa that's like incredibly comfortable, and they're de-emphasizing that. For example, um, if I were Gary, I would be doubling down on that and just like keep you know keep keep pushing that. Maybe change it a little bit, but maintain the the same you know the same concept. Um, I think on the on the quality side, they've also cut some corners. And again, as we've said, that sort of craftsmanship, not outsourcing um, your manufacturing, etc. You know, if ideally this stuff would have to be handmade and have like a, a whole story behind it of where it was made and by who and whatever. So um, all, all of that, I think it's it's important. And then on the on the advertising side, uh, they don't they don't do any any advertising, which. You know, I'm not uh, entirely sure whether that's correct or not. Each company will have their own uh, their, their own way to 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 kind of go about that. Um, obviously, you know, we know, I mean, Rolex and, and the other watch brands, well, they advertise as well as, as their mess. But for example, Ferrari doesn't advertise. They spend zero dollars in advertising. Their, their main sort of marketing channel is, is Formula One and, and like sort of the races and events like that. Um, so, I mean, I think it's, it's going to be very interesting to, to follow and, um, and, I mean, for anybody that's interested in 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 the luxury in the luxury space, I think it's it's kind of a must to uh, at least get a little a better sense of of what's going on in 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 our age and and see how that whole thing unfolds. One uh one follow up here, and I think maybe you guys can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like you guys are saying with these luxury companies, the heritage is not even necessarily with the company, but it can be with a specific product like the Birkin bag or uh, with Louis Vuitton. It's the the travel uh, case. I forget the exact term they have for it, but is that 
what you're saying, RH might be making a mistake in is not having the specific product that has, say, a multi-decade history that, well, they have well, to kind of build up over time, but is... Uh, I, I would say one... I would say one stems from the other, right? I mean, Hermes yeah. is much older than the Birkin, but the Birkin has been so successful because Hermes has been done for yeah. almost two centuries ma making um, leather goods. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and another thing about, about RH is, is they have way too many products, like uh, SKUs to be considered luxury. The, the, the real luxury companies usually only have a handful of models. Um, so if, if they were really serious about it, they would just like, you know, and it's, again, it's hard because furniture is such a unique category and there's arguably not really any high end, like, like real luxury, um, furniture company. So it's, it's all kind of up in the air to see how it goes. But, um, but it seems to me that, that they also have like way too many collections and it would be probably smarter to just concentrate in a in a couple of their best selling products and and really work to build on on you know on some story behind it and 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 how it gets made who designed it um and stuff like that but they don't they don't seem to be to be doing that and and again you can just walk in and buy any of this stuff right it's not i mean some of it might be back ordered or whatever but it's not they're not hard to get and i will also add that I would also add that the the products are, I mean, they have models that have been around for decades, but the products are not static. I mean, um, you can see Hermes, they have 17, uh, 16 segments, and some of those have, have come in the in the last 10 years. The, the thing is that having such a brand equity allows you to bring a new um, segment and automatically, your customers will have the same feeling as with your other segments because you have all that history behind you. No, that's a great point. All right. We're wrapping up-ish here. I don't know. It's just uh, been long for any of the listeners, but I think there's plenty to learn from this and it's such an interesting industry. Um, one thing that is unique, I guess, is there's a lot of private companies here, a lot of family-owned stuff. So what's the advantage of being private versus public? And what's the difference or maybe the advantage of being a standalone versus a part of a, as they always like to call themselves, groups, but basically a conglomerate? I think the key example here would be uh, Hermes versus LVMH. Yeah, so interestingly, in in the watch world, the true luxury watch companies are privately owned, right? Rolex, uh, Patek Philippe, and, and AP. Um, Rolex, interestingly, is owned by a foundation, so it's it's technically operated as an as a nonprofit, and or I guess all the all the excess profits go to the foundation, which then are, you know, used for philanthropic uses and 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 whatnot. But I think there's a huge advantage um, for these companies to be to be to be private, um, mainly because you don't have to respond to any sort of shareholders, right? And 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 if you're public, in many cases, you'll have shareholders that are pressuring you to meet your your guidance or you know achieve a certain level of, of EPS growth or, or or whatever. And just you know, Rolex doesn't have that problem. Like, who knows how that stock would have reacted when they made this this huge splashy acquisition um, of, of of Booker in, in the last in the last few months? 
and they can just focus on the next 50 years literally like they don't have to worry about the next quarter or even the next two years like that that's that it just it just doesn't matter for them so i think that's that's a huge advantage when it comes uh to you know being public versus being private and just the very own nature of of of, lux- of a luxury company and how it should be managed really lends itself well to having that really really long-term mindset um and there's obviously very successful public companies on the luxury space and and Leandro will 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 talk about them but in the case of of the watch of the watch uh industry um yeah i mean you have swatch which owns a bunch of brands that is that is public uh, omega being sort of the best one and and it's it's kind of in the top 3 of of the largest swiss swiss brands and then um i, I arguably richmond uh, which is a competitor to LVMH, one of the big groups. They actually have a pretty good uh, watch portfolio, but it gets it gets lost inside inside all the other stuff, right? They own Cartier as well, um, and a, and a couple of other fashion brands. Um, but they have a pretty decent watch portfolio, which interestingly enough, it's 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 better than LVMH's. And and I think LVMH has talked about their interest in in sort of w- growing their their watch exposure because their brands aren't really that good. Um, so yeah, I'll pass it on to Landry to talk more about the, the groups and mm-hmm. the samples. Yeah, yeah. I, I think just to comment on this, I think the the luxury companies that are publicly traded, they are all basically all privately owned and operated. I mean, it's like they just mm, are publicly traded to make a favor, like to 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 shareholders who want to own them. But uh, in Hermes, seventy percent is in the hands of the family. So obviously, they are not going to succumb to investor pre- to investor pressure. And I know this is going to be a bit um, a strange example, but if Hermes wasn't entirely family owned right now, probably they'll have a good shareholder base who thinks long term. And I think you can also see this in companies such as Constellation Software, right? I mean. They have such trust behind them that they can run as a, they can be in the publicly traded, but run almost privately because people trust so much what they are doing. But obviously it's better to have a controlling ownership just in case. And as, as for the standalone versus the, versus the group companies, I think you do set the best example, Brett, which is Hermes versus LVMH. I think. Both models can be successful, and this is evident because LVMH has been extremely successful and Hermes has been extremely successful too. Um, I think the success of LVMH, actually Sleepwell commented on this um, several months back, I don't know if on, on Twitter or on an article, has been demonstrating that they can be a very good owner of luxury brands. When a luxury owner wants to sell, they know that not every conglomerate is made for them because they don't follow the luxury strategy. And uh, Arnold was very intelligent in telling them, look, this is going to be a house where you're going to be treated as a luxury company. So then that sets up uh, like a lot of uh, the pipeline is is strong for, for LBMH. But I think it's going to be very, very tough for other conglomerates to compete against LBMH, right? Because they have the reputation, they have all the means to do it. So why should I sell to Caring as a luxury company and not to LVMH? I, I, I think that's very important and people don't like 
caring is going to be left probably with uh, brands that are not so luxury because they don't have the history of being such a good good conglomerate as LVMH. I mean, there's a clear draw drawback to conglomerates in the luxury space, and Sleepwell touched on this like a few moments ago, and is that you are going to dilute your best brands. I mean, that's going to happen because you cannot, it, but it's the same as having a portfolio when you invest, right? If you have 10 companies and you start to add more companies, then you're obviously diluting the quality of your first 10 holdings. And for example, in LVMH, you have Dior. Dior for me is true luxury. I mean, they, they are a very good luxury brand, very, very strong in the leather, in the leather space. But then you have Sephora. I mean, it's it's like two worlds, two different worlds. Then you also have LVMH also had uh, has spirits, which okay they they can be considered luxury in some cases, but spirits is a very marketing intensive industry, so that's not very um, appealing from a luxury perspective. And I think it's it it can work, but it has that drawback. And then you also have drawbacks in the standalone model. And one one of the things that that people say it's the main drawback uh, to being a, a standalone company is the reputational issues. Because if you have a reputational issue, it's going to affect the whole brand. Whereas if LVMH has a reputational issue in one of its brands, then probably they can contain it better so that it doesn't spill to the to the rest of the brands. But I mean, I'm a bit skeptical that that's really a drawback because I think it will take a lot of reputational issues to bring down a brand such as Hermes. I mean, Hermes has has had scandals with crocodile skin in the past and nothing happened, basically. They they just fixed it and, and, and moved forward. And I mean, Ferrari, they have... Their marketing is Formula One and they are getting beaten by a drink company. I mean, energy drink company. That's like huge for them uh, reputational but it, it it has to be a sustained period of uh, red bull winning against ferrari or maybe red bull becoming the best team in formula one because ferrari is still the best team in the history of formula one and then if, if they retain that then it's going to be tough to bring it down but i think both can work but i personally think that if you're a standalone company then you can focus all your efforts on building one brand equity and that's also very appealing because then you can open another category. And it's what I commented on before. Hermes started uh, selling furniture. That segment automatically has the brand equity of another segment. And that's for me, that's very powerful. Okay, let's zoom in on today. What are maybe the growth opportunities and the state of the industry? I know the least people or some people are concerned about Asia Pacific, specifically China, a very important market, but maybe that's incorrect. What are you guys' thoughts on where we sit today in the next few years? In terms of the state of the market, at least from the perspective of, of the watch world, and I think that's it's 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 pretty clear across the entire luxury space. What we're seeing in the second half of, of this year is Basically, a normalization in the in the growth. Um, COVID proved to be uh, an incredible period for basically all all luxury brands. Um, so, I think we're we're you know it's they're still growing pretty pretty nicely, not to the extent uh, that they were before, 
Um, but we're also starting to see some divergence be- between what we consider the true luxury brands versus the aspirational luxury brands. So, you know, in within watches, the big three that we've been talking about, they're still doing well. Um, again, they have long wait lists. So if they, if, if, if for whatever reason, consumers start, you know, saying that they may not be as interested in, in this, in this watch and they pass on it, you know, the retailer would just go down the list and call the next person up and it most likely will get sold pretty quickly. Right. So these companies are still probably growing in the double digits. Um, while the rest of the industry is basically flat to down. Um, I mean, uh, Richmond, which I mentioned has a, a diversified portfolio of, of watch brands. Um, some very, very respected other ones that are a little more, you know, lower end, but they reported basically low single digit sales. I think it was up 3% in the quarter. Um, again, that's very different to, uh, what, uh, a Rolex and, and, and Patek Philippe, um, we don't know the exact numbers because these numbers aren't public, but Morgan Stanley comes up with some estimates and, and yeah, they're just basically the, 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 the top end of the pyramid is, is, is outperforming um, sort of a lower end, if that, if that makes sense. And, and I think it's key to read um, the earnings calls of true luxury companies, because you do get a sense that the management teams of the true luxury business um, have complete control of what's going on their business. I mean, you go th- you go through a recession, and they can tell you next year will grow and they'll grow. And when you read uh, about aspirational luxury, the feeling is more that yes, they do have control, but that they are more subject to what the economy wants to do. And in, in luxury, it's just basically we'll do this next quarter, and you know, or we'll new- we'll do this next year, and and you can count on that they'll do it. Because they, they are basically in control, and this is thanks to what we talked before. Uh, it's about um, the pricing. Because if you control pricing and you still can price below the demand, then you basically control your growth rate. Another interesting thing is that you mentioned that China is the the biggest market for for luxury, and and that's obviously true. But if you look at the income statements of these companies, of the luxury companies, um, maybe, I think Hermes has like forty six percent. Uh, coming from, I don't know actually if it's Asia or China alone, but well, the the exposure is much much larger than that. I mean, if you if I go to the Hermes store in Madrid, like eighty percent of the people will be Chinese. So the, the exposure to the Chinese customer is very very high, even if they report like no in France we sold yeah, but in France the people that are buying are mostly Asians. So you're you're depending a lot of on the Asian population. I think the, I think we have seen, well, people think that we have seen a pull forward uh, during the pandemic because obviously you had Hermes growing at above 20% rates. And to some extent, I do agree. I don't, I don't think Hermes wants to grow 20% every year. And I don't think that's the objective. They, they will always tell you, in the last two decades, we've grown 8 10%. And that's what you should have as your benchmark. And I don't think that the market has understood that this is sustainable either. I mean, these companies are trading at multiples similar to what they were um, before the pandemic, or maybe slightly higher, but not um, double higher, like as to like to to pricing a double of the growth rate in just three years. And these companies know that 
they have to retain exclusivity above all costs. And if that means growing slower, they'll do it. And this goes back to being privately owned. You can do that because you're privately owned. If you're publicly owned and you've set your expectations at 20%, then you know that if you don't beat that or, or at least meet that, then you're going to have a very tough time. All right. Last question. We try to do a sort of devil's advocate to end it. Uh, I mean, this is clearly an attractive industry, but from your guys' point of view, two people that follow the industry closely, why would it be, say, smaller? Or why would anything, you know, what could hurt this industry over the next 10, 20 years compared to today? I mean, honestly, the only thing that I can think of is, you know, some extreme event that, you know, kind of unforeseen that causes sort of the upper to middle class to lose a ton of earning power in the next 10 to 20 years. Or maybe, you know, the, we have seen this trend of, of the rise of the super rich in the last, you know, couple decades. There's every year there's more and more billionaires or whatever. If that reverses, you know, obviously, you know, obviously that that's very bad for the, for the industry. Um, for any of these companies that we talked about specifically, there's always the risk that they, you know, that they become, you know, complacent and sort of stop staying, staying true to this luxury strategy and, and this, this, you know, this, this, yeah, this path that they've taken on for so many years and start, you know, diluting the brand and maybe having too many products or, or selling, you know, selling too much of it, et cetera. So obviously that's always a risk with these, uh, with, with these companies and, and you just gotta be cognizant of, of what they're doing to, to really build and maintain the status that they, that they have. Mm -hmm. I think that if you look back 10 years ago and well, or maybe 15 years ago, and you look back at the global financial crisis and you see that true luxury companies growing through the, the global financial crisis. That's obviously a good benchmark to, to look at, but you also have to take into account that these companies are much more exposed to the middle class today. I mean, they have a huge accessory businesses. Um, so that is more exposed to a recession. But then uh, I was someone who thought this way, but then in the, uh, the other day in the, in the um, earnings call by Hermes, uh, management actually said that the proportion of sales coming from VIP customers has not changed as much. So this, these companies have, have grown very, they, they won't tell you a number, but they'll tell you like our VIP uh, proportion of customers is pretty similar to what it had been in the past. So then when you see that, you start to think, okay, that's, that's actually impressive that they have managed to grow so much while having a similar amount of, of um, VIP customers. I would also say that maybe regulation can be seen as a risk, especially as what what we're seeing. I, I don't want to get political here, but when you see the governments that are advancing in the world and everything, regulation will always be an issue because um, going back to what I said earlier, uh, luxury in some cases is seen as um, creating inequality and maybe government wants to tackle that. But then at the same time, I see the Chinese government, which is obviously um, a, um, a communist uh, country, and they were the ones that said, okay, open the doors, here's luxury, and try to get that because that's the way to grow. So if China has done that, I, I honestly have a 
a tough time seeing how other countries will will regulate um will regulate luxury so yeah i think it's also i think i have uh, uh talked with with sleep well about this that when people talk about the luxury market you'll you'll search uh luxury market size and you'll get a size that is not representative of the true luxury companies i mean you'll get a lot of premium brands in there so maybe if you you, you look in 10 years and we've had an economic crisis and um and the market is not as not where it is today i'm pretty sure that will be due to the premium brands and not the true luxury brands i have a very but a lot of trouble seeing why true luxury is not bigger 10 years from now or 20 years from now than it is today. Yeah, that's a great point. All right. I think that's going to do it. Thank you to both of you for joining today. As we wrap up, where can listeners and investors find more of your work? So I'm on Twitter as SleepwellCap, and I also have a Substack where I post you know, whatever I'm interested in at the moment, um, um, not very, not very often, but every I try to do every couple of months. So feel free to take a look, and we can link to that Rolex piece, which is relevant to the conversation as well. Yeah, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was about to mention we will link to that Rolex piece, and we'll link to a lot of the stuff we've talked about, including that uh, luxury strategy book uh, that's yep. so important. But Leandro, where can people find you? Um, yeah, on Twitter also uh, at InvestQuotes and also on Seeking Alpha, I have a, an investment research service called um, Best Tanker Stocks. So I would say those two are the, the best sources. All right. That's going to do it, everyone. I'm going to try to do the disclosure because Ryan usually do, does it. Uh, I'm not a financial advisor. Anything we say on this show is not formal advice or recommendation. I or any guests may have positions to, uh, in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you everyone for tuning in and we'll see you next time.